Games, and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is Kev Kozer, and I'm here with my co-host, J.G. McQuarrie. Say hi, J.G. Hey there, Kev. How's life? Uh, I don't have a joke this week. I am actually a little stuffed up in the nose, so if you hear that in this recording, I apologize in advance. But yeah, I'm very excited for our discussion this week, where we're stepping out of our comfort zone in two different ways. Yes, this week we are going to be covering, for the first time in the podcast, one of the Unbound range. And that means we're going to be doing Sympathy for the Devil, which is uh, the second story in the range, and stars an alternative third Doctor with the Brigadier. And we're also going to be having a discussion of Season 11. We've just finished watching the New Year special, and of course we've completed Season 11 itself now. So we thought we would check in and see how this somewhat controversial season has gone down. But let's kick off with Sympathy for the Devil. So Kev, do you want to give us a quick summary of this one? Sympathy of the Devil is a what-if story about what if, instead of the third Doctor being played by John Pertwee in Exile to the 70s, he was played by David Warner in Exile to the 90s, specifically 1997 Hong Kong on the eve of the uh, Chinese takeover from British rule. And it basically sort of imagines a world where the Doctor is not around to save England and help unit with all the various third Doctor adventures set in that vague 70s, 80s time period, and sees a brigadier sort of down on his luck with a failed career, and also puts him against a master, played by Sam Kisgart, as they do a rift on Mind of Evil and sort of explore the continuity of that episode on top of all of this. It's a very sort of deliciously continuity-heavy story, but not in a very uh, obnoxious or overly indulgent way it just really sort of relies on Doctor Who history in a very natural way it's just a very tight sort of thriller well it's a pretty good summary I would say I'm going to say a couple of things uh, straight off the bat with this one um firstly it's about the unbound range itself um which I just want to praise the existence of really I think one of the things I I, I really love sympathy for the devil I'll also say that straight off the bat as well I thoroughly enjoyed this but I think one of the things that's really great about the Unbound range is the fact that it's really prepared to sort of take risks and try things without any kind of real feeling that they, I mean, they could succeed, they could uh, fail. Some of them are better than others, but it's a real gamble to try and do this kind of thing. And and I know this kind of thing exists in comic books as well, where we explore kind of out of continuity uh, stories and, and, you know, Superman landing in Russia instead of America and all that kind of stuff. You know, there's lots of sort of prior examples of this kind of thing being done, but I think it's really brilliant to kind of bring that into Doctor Who and start just having fun with the continuity. You know, we've often talked in the podcast about how continuity can really drag down stuff like Zagreus or whatever, because it's just such a dead weight hanging on the story. But what I really like about this is that there's a real playfulness to it. So it really, of course, you really need to kind of know a bit about your Doctor Who history for this one, but it's happy to play around with all those different ideas and different ways of doing it and taking something which is very familiar and, and, and sort of reshaping it. And And I think things like the ambition of the Unbound range is one of the things that I think Big Finish should exist for. I know there's been a couple of stories in the last two or three years which have sort of nudged back towards David Warner's Doctor, um, but not sort of officially part of the Unbound range. And that's kind of nice, but I just... 
as this ranges, whatever it is, eight stories, if I remember rightly, these eight stories really kind of embrace that kind of love of, of Doctor Who's past, not just for continuity's own sake, but just exploring that past and poking it in interesting and new ways. I think that's exactly what Big Finish should be doing, and I want to just thoroughly sort of praise the existence of this line. Oh yeah, the Unbound range is fascinating. Even though I dislike maybe half the stories in it, um, it like even the bad ones... I don't even don't want to say bad ones because they each have their fans. Even like they they're all fascinating. So I'm trying to say they are all like very interesting ideas. They all really push sort of Doctor Who in very unusual places and do things that you wouldn't normally really consider Doctor Who to sort of look like, and that's very fascinating. Uh, to be more specific, it was six stories sort of published in honor of the 40th anniversary in 2003. And then two follow-up stories, one following up the first story, All of Mortality, the second following up this story, Masters of War, which brings back David Warner. And it really is, yeah, just sort of fascinating to see them do these sort of tangents on Doctor Who. And it is nice that they're sort of remembering it by bringing David Warner back. And I don't know the exact particulars, just that he's shown up in the new Bernie Summerfield range, but that is... Sort of nicer than to honor that and really get more use out of David Warner because that man is no stranger to Big Finish. Oh, good grief, no, he's definitely not. Nor is he a stranger to Doctor Who, but he's just one of those actors. I just, I love his version of the third Doctor here. It's it's not in any way indebted to John Pertwee, which I, I greatly admire. There's no attempts to link it back or explain or do anything. They just, it's just established as is. And so instead of John Pertwee falling out of the TARDIS somewhere in England in the early 70s, uh, David Warner falls out of the TARDIS in 1997 in Hong Kong. And this, that's just it. There's no attempt to buffer it. It's not justified or explained. And that's how it should be with this kind of story, because it's it's a what if. And in this case, it's what if the Doctor turned up, you know, 20 or 30 years too late. And, you know, they have a lot of fun playing around with that. But this is only going to work if that kind of central Doctor is, is going to uh, succeed. And that's one of the great things about the Unbound range is that they have so many interesting uh, different actors playing these alternate doctors. So, okay, okay we, here we have David Warner, you, uh, Jeffrey Bailden and All Mortality, uh, the always brilliant uh, David Collings in Full Fathom 5, and of course the first female doctor, if you want to talk about Arabella Weir in, in Exile. Um, so there's just so much interesting kind of playing around, but sort of pulling it back to this one, I just love David Warner's performance here. He's just great. And I, I, I said before, sort of, I thoroughly enjoy this. I do. This isn't a super heavyweight story by any step. It's, it's sort of, if this was like a 70s run around a 70s unit run around that it would be kind of maybe season eight it's not the kind of strong uh sort of uh, initial ideas of unit from from season seven but it's not the kind of sort of family jokathon from from the kind of later part we so it would be maybe sit somewhere in there i guess um it's a solid run around the masters in it and of course season eight is the master season um and so you know it this this it fits nicely in that whilst also not really having anything to do with that at all i think it's probably not an easy balancing act to pull off but but i'm i'm thoroughly impressed by by how well that side of it works oh yeah it's a really well-built story like it does have its sort of continuity reliance which can be a red flag especially with big finish but the way it sort of reinterprets mind of evil and sort of expands on it rather than just sort of reiterating it is very sort of smart 
And David Warner is such a different presence from any other Doctor we've had that, yeah, it really does feel like a really fresh, unique take on it. And the pairing up with Nicholas Courtney, it's just a, they just work together really well. Oh, there's such a brilliant rapport between uh, Nicholas Courtney and David Warner. And I think that's one of the things that really helps to sort of sell this version of the Doctor is the way that the Brigadier responds to him. So we have to have a little bit of, oh, are you really the Doctor? Oh, yes, but I've got a new face kind of material. I suppose we have to put up with that. Um, but it's sort of relatively short and it's relatively confined to sort of early on in the story. And, and that's as it should be. We don't need to spend a lot of time kind of laboring over this. This isn't a particularly long play. So that makes perfect sense. But yeah, I think the way that, that the Brigadier responds to the Doctor and the way that Courtney and Warner just have that kind of almost instant sort of rapport together, it just makes it feel immediately like this is the Doctor. And that, that covers so much ground that doesn't need to be sort of explained away through, um, you know, backstory and continuity references, whatever. And it can just kind of get on with the story. And of course, uh, as you said in your introduction, that story is, is sort of kind of a version of the mind of evil. It's not exactly that, but it's using the same kind of creatures and it's trying to find new ways of exploring what could be done with that and and that's kind of an interesting little thing to poke as well but uh, yeah no I, I mean there's a couple of question marks that we can have over this story but I don't think in any way David Warner is one of them he's great and I would happily continue to listen to his stories as a doctor oh for sure like I can't remember much about Masters of War it's been a quite a few years since I listened to it but it, I remember it being solid it was sort of David Warner against the Davros and the Daleks, and that was, it was good, good story, and a lot of it was because David Warner and uh, Nicholas Courtney had such great, like, chemistry as the sort of Doctor Companion pairing. Yeah, it's been a while since I've listened to, uh, I've listened to it as well. I don't, um, yeah, I don't remember Masters of War being as good as this, but it's been a long time since I've listened to it as well, but, but, like those two are always a highlight and we get like a nice little coda at the end of this which kind of really suggests that the brigadier and this version of the doctor are going to sort of go out into the universe and explore and i kind of i wish we had more stories that they do that i'm quite happy that we have one or that we have any but i would have been quite happy to have a lot more of them as well and um yeah there's something just kind of maybe it's because we've been wading through so much of the divergent universe arc of late and kind of like sort of stories which haven't quite managed to come together or we've had to maybe explain a bit around them or whatever and sort of push them and poke them and prod them into sort of being oh, well this bit's quite good or oh well that stands up but this just felt straightforwardly entertaining in a way that it feels like a while that we've since we've done a story that i i just thought oh this is great yeah sure it's not a big heavyweight piece or whatever but it's just it it takes its concept it runs with it and and it sort of delivers on it oh for sure. It's definitely been a while since we've had just a story that's very streamlined like this. And, I mean, even the good stories that we've covered recently, like Arrangements for War, they've, they haven't been just as sort of simple and just sort of straightforward as just a really well-spun Doctor Who story that sort of gets all its concepts out of the way and sort of delivers on the sort of action and sort of clever ideas that you really come to expect and that hit satisfyingly like this story does. There's always some bit of like convolution or sort of extra layer on top of it, and frequently with stuff like medicinal purposes or faith stealer or the two divergent stories that are coming out in the next two weeks that we're discussing. It's been uh, it's been hit or miss. So yeah, I really appreciate just the very sort of just pitched down the middle after who story like this. It's a real breath of fresh air. 
Well, absolutely. And the performances go a long way to uh, make it that kind of enjoyable thing as well. Not just that we've talked about David Warner and Nicholas Courtney, um, but everybody is kind of on fire here and, and sort of delivering good work. And, and of course, we have like David Tennant and Mark Gattis on hand. So, you yes. know, I mean, <laughs> you know, that, I, I don't really need to say much about that. Do I? Um, they're I, I want to say it's... something. I messed up earlier in the episode. I said Sam Kisgart because I was just reading off the cast list without <laughs> thinking. Yeah, yeah. Then is, is Mark Gattis doing the master thing of obscuring the credit? But yes, is uh, I thought I thought you were doing a clever riff there, and I no, just let it that go. Was so. just, uh, <laughs> that was just me not paying attention. But yes, it's Mark Gaddis as the master, and he does a great job. Oh yeah, he definitely does. He's he relishes doing yeah. this. Yeah, it's like Gaddis for faults I've done for in the past, probably on air on this podcast. Like he does, he really keys into the master here. He has a great sort of scene chewing performance, just really. Like you said, relishing in the sort of loving to be evil and loving to have a master plan, and like, and then it's always so satisfying to have that moment where the master is sort of tricked and has to sort of seem pathetic because of that. He hits all those notes so perfectly. Oh yeah, absolutely. And you know, he's just so good at any kind of Grand Guignol character, which the master absolutely is, especially in that kind of Roger Delgado kind of mode. Um, you know, and again, I like the fact that they don't really bother. There's no attempt at, there's no impression, there's no justification. It's just this is who the master is at the moment. Um, but I also I like the use of the master here as well. The idea that he's been deliberately provoking trouble around Earth in order to try and draw the doctor's attention, but the doctor just never showed up. That's quite a nice use of the master because it feels very consistent with the way that the master might behave because he doesn't care how much damage or collateral damage he he sort of causes in any one of his sort of ridiculous plans. But this one feels like it's something the master would done, would have done, but we've never really seen him actually behave in that way, or her, if you want to include Missy as well. And that's, uh, you know, that's nice. It's, it's not always easy to find kind of new takes on, on sort of relatively familiar material. And Okay, sure, here it's a typical crazy plan, and he's got his, you know fatal flaw in it that always manages to sort of see him hoist by his own petard but but like that little bit of backstory that little bit of extra use of the master just does push the character a little bit further than him just turning up to twirl his mustache at us you know speaking about how the master talks about how all i did all his schemes were to sort of attract the doctor's attention this is sort of like a stealth like emotional metatextual why we need the doctor story that people like Stephen moffat and his ilk are so fond of doing because this sort of idea that without the Doctor, so many bad things happen to the world, and it's a much sort of worse place just for him arriving 20 years later without his help in like those older decades. And I sort of like that, how it's sort of an understated thing. You have that question asked about the Master and the Brigadier, sort of, where were you? Why didn't you help us? Or, in the Master's case, confront me and pal around with me, and I guess you could say. And... Yeah, it does sort of emphasize in a very sort of subtle way, oh, we need the Doctor. The Doctor is such an important part of the planet in sort of in Doctor Who continuity terms, but also we need the Doctor in real life because he's so inspiring. And I guess I really like how that's sort of a little subtle runner through it about how important the Doctor is, but it doesn't really call attention to itself in the way a lot of stories with that theme do. Well, yeah, and it's kind of... I suppose you can see that aspect of it as being very kind of like turn left if you want to compare it to something yeah. in the new series. Um, I, you know, it, it, I think it's definitely sort of going for the same sort of 
notes, but it's like five years earlier. So I think it's, uh, I mean, you know, I think it's a valid thing to sort of consider what does happen when the doctor's not around or what could happen if he doesn't turn up and help. And again, we get little offhanded references to sort of carpet bombing of Surrey or the fact that there's now a big lake in the middle of uh, London or something like that. And the brigadier might have uh, sort of sacrificed his career on the altar of trying to kind of live up to the same sort of status as the doctor, but he can't quite do it. And so as a result, he's, he's out here kind of essentially in a sort of self-imposed exile and uh, yeah, that's that's nice. These are these are little sort of continuity sort of blips which are dropped in, but they're not lingered on. There's an offhand reference to Mike Yates sort of sacrificing himself or whatever, and and that's good. That feels like the right way to kind of develop this alternative version of the world that we know, but not doing it, you know, with this kind of big kind of heavy hand of continuity slapping everything about the place. Yeah. Before we get away from the cast completely, I do want to shout out to David Tennant. I mean, I know you said we have. Like, all know about David Tennant already, but I do think he does a great job here playing a character who is, again, very different from the other David Tennant characters we've covered on this podcast. I mean, obviously different from the Doctor, very different from the Doctor, but uh, very different from Daft Jamie as well. Closer to Colonel Kurtz, but still a much more louder and aggressive guy, uh, Colonel Wood, is in this story. He is such a bully, but in a very... I don't know. He's so annoying that it's almost kind of satisfying and funny that he's just so over the top. And especially when he gets comeuppance at the end, you sort of relish it, even if it's bad news for the rest of the people in Hong Kong. Oh, yeah, I didn't really mean to sound that dismissive earlier on. Um, I do think he gives a, a good performance here. And the way that he kind of spits out Lethbridge every time he's talking to the brigadier, that's a nice, it gives him a nice sort of contemptible edge. He's very easy to go spoo at. Um, and that's fine. That's what his role requires. But there is enough depth. And I think David Tennant is a good enough actor to bring enough depth to the role as well. That that's not all he is. And, and there's... Uh, a certain element, I think, to, to the colonel that he... We don't want to side with him because he's in opposition to the brigadier, but at the same time, it's not like his understanding of how unit works or, or what the brigadier did. It's, it's not that it's an unfair interpretation exactly. He just isn't quite aware of everything in a way that maybe the brigadier is. Um, maybe he is a little bit more close-minded, and that's that's kind of led to part of his, his problems understanding what's going on here. But at the same time, it's not entirely difficult to understand why he's come to the conclusions he's come to. And that's that's sort of an important part of his characterization. I, it works well, and, and, and of course, yeah, Tennant is great at it. Oh, for sure. And yeah, I always appreciate David Tennant showing up. I think this will be the last time we see him show up in episodes we cover... Well, until uh, third volume of Tenth Doctor Adventures, of course. Well, of course. Yeah, so there we go. But yeah, uh, now I've talked enough about our sort of principal characters, I want to get into the setting, which is really fascinating for Doctor Who, because Doctor Who does so rarely go outside of England, especially for historical stories. It's nice to sort of have this Hong Kong set adventure, especially at such sort of an important day. And... Yeah, it really does add this nice flavor to the story that I really like. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think it is nice when the Doctor Who world is actually the world and not just, yeah, as you say, England or, or at a stretch sort of European history. And it's great to see them kind of... I, I vividly remember the handover in, in 1997 and, you know, the lowering of the, the flag on Empire and all this kind of stuff. And uh, the play doesn't particularly 
over i mean obviously that's the key setting that's why we're here but at the same time it doesn't feel the need to feed into it and it's it's almost quite impressive about the way that it avoids kind of being sort of rah rah about the whole thing and like the only time we ever hear anybody like singing a patriotic song or anything like that it's you know drunk idiots on their way home from the pub or whatever and there's a I think there's a wariness about empire and, and sort of Britain's role in empire here, which I, I, I greatly appreciate. And it's, again, an unusual note to strike, especially in Doctor Who, because so much of Doctor Who kind of has its roots in, in sort of Victorian adventure fiction, which sort of springs directly out of that kind of expansion of empire in the 19th century. So it's it's nice to have those kind of notes of doubt about the way the empire maybe functions. I don't want to overemphasize it because I think it's a very, there are minor notes uh, in the script about it, but I, I greatly appreciate choosing this as a setting and I greatly appreciate the kind of historical emphasis isn't on, you know, kind of that, that sort of rah-rah aspect, which is so very easily could have been. Yeah, I don't really know exactly what to think about that sort of aspect because you're right that it does seem to have a, a sort of a distance. Like it's not fully buying into sort of the... English Kool-Aid, to choose a phrase. But at the same time, I don't know, it puts a lot of, not only sympathy, but we start off with these two British uh, expats doing that sort of rah-rah patriotism thing. One of them is the very drunken, very racist Marcus, who then gets another funny scene later. But it is sort of, I don't know, always sort of disquieting when a sort of character like that doesn't sort of get their call-out or comeuppance, in a sense, you know? And so I yeah, don't really yeah. know. Yeah, it does. It's very. You're right that it sort of avoids being rah rah, but also doesn't really stake a point of view in the other direction so much either, which makes it. I mean, it's interesting to think about. It's not a positive or negative to me, but it does, like you say, put itself in sort of a more of, I guess, a tabula rasa sort of view of the event, sort of a neutral overlook of it to sort of set the story against, but doesn't really. Uh, project anything onto it which is interesting for sure and i don't really know what my opinion of that is but it definitely sort of lets you supply the answers in a sense i think one of the things this you can tell me if i'm over reading things here i think it's definitely possible but i think one of the things that sort of keys into that sort of um very questioning attitude towards empire is the fact that the brigadier's pub is called the little england and that is such a term of contempt or at least it's a, it's used as a pejorative term especially in the press if somebody's described as being a little englander it usually means small closed-minded narrow-minded possibly quite racist um you know it, it's it's never a complimentary term that being a little England or being a little Englander. It's always it's always a criticism. And so the fact that the British pub is called the Little England and the fact that they have that 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 phrase, um, filth, filled in uh, London, try Hong Kong, and the brigadier specifically points it out. He says, mind your language when somebody, I think it's even the doctor, is going to say that and he, he cuts him off. So there is a sense that um, I think there are internal sort of mechanisms within the play that suggest the sort of profound questioning of of that sort of thing and i like looking at um jonathan clements's uh sort of non-doctor who work you know he he seems to be somebody with a sort of profoundly invested sense of of what's going on and you know i mean he wrote a a biography of confucius so he must he must have some investment in this kind of uh, this area so um yeah i'm i'm again i I don't want to lean too heavily on it but i think there are definitely sort of suggestions about how and, and and why 
these events are now sort of playing out the way that they are. Anyway, sorry, I'll, I'll move on from that for now. I just want to say, as a Yank, I would not have picked up on any of that. So that is very important information. Thank you very much. I do... There is one sort of problem I, we don't want to pick on for this story, and that is uh, a very big finish problem. Hopefully the last time I have to talk about this, a casting problem. Uh, on the plus side, we do have Liz Sutherland as Ling, who is appropriately cast as an Asian person. But then we have the supposedly also Asian abbot of the monastery, played by the very white Trevor Littledale. And <laughs> like, I, we've had enough to say about this in our Blood Tide episode. If you want us to go over Big Finish's bad history with uh, keeping casting appropriate, look there. We also talk about it in Aramim's first episode as well. But basically, uh, not good, very bad. But hopefully this, since this was a 2003 story, I don't think, uh, hopefully we're past this point of this happening when we're covering Big Finish. Well, the way I'm going to try and look at it is, is that we're making some progress. So back when we were talking about Blood Tide, there was basically nobody that was appropriately cast. And here, moving forward, at least there's someone, at least there's, you know, somebody who's genuinely Asian in the cast playing that kind of character. Um, and, you know, as things go on, we know that it's going to get a bit better as well. So at least we can, like, try to look in the bright side of life here, but at least we can see that some progress is being made in that sort of front, which is good. It shouldn't take this long, that's for sure. And, and it's definitely a, something that Big Finish deserved to be criticized for, but at least we're getting there. Uh, for final thoughts, I mean, yeah, I pretty much said those final thoughts I think, early in the podcast, but yeah, this is a very refreshing straight down the middle story, a very sort of fascinating what if, not really for what it doesn't do, but really for just how it sort of sideways looks. Like, Turn Left is such a great example. It really is like not Doctor Who, like I've never seen him before, but really Doctor Who just from a sort of slighter, different angle. And just sort of mix things up a little bit to create something fresh while still familiar. And that's really sort of appreciative. And if you want really radically different Doctor Who, you can check out the Unbound range for Old Mortality and uh, especially Deadline are really, really strange Doctor Who stories. But this is a really great sort of what if that just tweaks it a bit and gets some very satisfying results out of it. Yeah, this is one of the most accessible of the unbound range to kind of the untrained eye, as it were. And yeah, it's just it's just a thoroughly easy listen, um, worth doing just for the cast alone. And yeah, it's it's just a, a terrific play to be able to spend a little bit of time with. But um, I think, yeah, we can probably leave Sympathy for the Devil there and turn our attention towards season 11. Now, we had an initial discussion um, a few weeks back when uh, season 11 was already underway. So we discussed the woman who fell to earth and then we had a sort of a bit of a catch up a few episodes later. Um, so let's return to the scene of the crime, as it were, and... Uh, yeah, spend a bit of time talking about season 11. How do you think it's played out now that we've actually seen every episode as well as the New Year's special? Well, I think calling it a crime to return to is a little harsh, but uh, yeah, I think it's it definitely never lived up to the promise that we sort of hoped out of it in that Women Who Fell to Earth episode. A lot of the threads that we thought, oh, it'd be interesting for them to follow it up, were not really followed up. And it mostly was a very competent season. If anything and this might be sort of damning by comparison, it's a very close to sort of Series 7 run under Moffat, where there's no real standout stories. Well, there was one for this season, but not many standout stories, though also not many 
flat-out embarrassments either, though there was one in Series 7. And so it's very... <laughs> and it makes it very hard to sort of think about and sort of have it stick in the mind, even so close after watching it. I mean, the New Year special was very good, but a lot of the other episodes have just sort of faded from memory a bit, and that's kind of a shame because there's a lot of elements that should be working for this and a lot of things I really love conceptually about the season that then just sort of didn't pan out. I'm very curious now what your season seven disaster area was. Oh, name of the doctor. I hate. <laughs> I, I had a feeling that's what you were going to say. Um, yeah, it's a funny one. I mean, I think it's such a weird season because I think there's so much to commend it, um, but also so much that it sort of needs needed to do as well and, and never quite managed to land. Um, I mean, the one thing that I would say that's consistent all the way through from uh, The Woman Who Fell to Earth right the way through to Resolution is just how brilliant Jodie Whittaker is. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm not going to bang this drum for a long time. We've, we've spoken about it before in the podcast, but she is just brilliant. And one of the joys about watching Resolution was getting to see her in a much more kind of uh, sort of zippy kind of action-packed story. She gets to face off against the Daleks, uh, or one Dalek, let's say, and um, and she gets the chance to do like big slides across the floor, and she's jumping about, and she gets to kind of really embrace that side of the character, which basically has been completely absent during season eleven, and sort of in retrospect you can you can see that that's something that's missing even the kind of slightly more action adventure kind of ones like say the uh, Taranga conundrum um yeah i'm still stumbling over that pronunciation all these weeks later um you know even with that you know it's still it, it takes a long time before it even really gets to that point and it's never really kind of like a, like a proper kind of actiony sort of uh doctor who story and yeah resolution is so great that it gives her the chance to to show how well she can carry off that side of the character and how they don't need to be timid about writing towards that side of the character just because it's Jodie that's in the role. And uh, yeah, I, I just, I've loved her all the way through it. I will continue to do so until the day that she leaves the role, which I hope will be a very long time from now. And uh, yeah, she's, she's just terrific. Jodie has pretty much the two quintessential qualities you want in a doctor, which is in bad material, they can still remain engaging and in good material, they can really sink their teeth into what they're being given and can just run with it. And she does both those things so well. Even in the weakest episodes, she's always this engaging presence on screen, the way she moves, the way she talks, the way she just acts in every sort of aspect of what she's doing. She's just, yeah, she's just a delight to watch and listen to. And so even in my least favorite stories of this series, I was very engaged with her, and that's really wonderful. And then you have some really like standout material, like her final speech in It Takes You Away, where she just just runs with it, and she does absolutely fantastic stuff. I mean, I still think the ceiling can be higher with her. Like, I still think there's nothing that has rivaled the best moments of the first four Doctors, which is a real shame. I want to say first four, I mean the first four new series. I guess you could say all the Doctors, really. All 12 Doctors have had some moment that has been, I think, higher quality writing, if you're including audio, of course. <laughs> Davison and <laughs> Colin Baker's uh, not so much on TV. But uh, yeah, they've all had some amazing monologue that's better than anything Jody has gotten. So I think that is unfortunate. I would love to see, hopefully, another season we get that moment. I would, like, 
the Zygon inversion or like the doctor dances or like any sort of McCoy speech that really lets Jody sort of off the hook and gives us her best self. Cause I still don't think we've seen it yet, but the great moments with her are so great and the low moments aren't that low at all. And that's really what makes a good doctor. Yeah, I think there's very little to criticize about her performance at all. And the fact that she is able to kind of sort of lift substandard material makes me feel that it's just so obvious how good she is. And yeah, I, I used the word timidity earlier. And I, I think there is a slight sense that the writing in this season has been a bit timid. Now, you can put that down to the fact that, um, you know, both Moffat and Russell T. Davis tend to be quite bombastic in their style and <laughs> mildly put. And um, Chris Chibnall isn't that kind of writer at all. And even if you look at his kind of sort of previous Doctor Who episodes, like The Power of Three is a very slow sort of th- more kind of thoughtful episode i guess um i guess 42 is kind of actiony but it's not it's not it's not really bombastic as such and and same with sort of dinosaurs in a spaceship um but if you look outside of a sort of doctor who and and take something like broadchurch for example you know the whole especially the first season of broadchurch the whole point is it, it's very low key in that kind of sort of scandy noir kind of way but it's still waters run deep so it's all about what's going on under the surface and that isn't an obvious fit up until this point that hasn't been an obvious fit for the new style of of doctor who which has been bombastic which has been very kind of heightened emotions and and sort of melodramatic and i don't mean any of those terms as a criticism it's just that stylistically how doctor who has worked up until this stage and then you get to season 11 and suddenly it just doesn't function that way anymore the episodes are a bit longer they're much more yeah still waters run deep more considered maybe in some ways um and the character beats are very 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 understated almost to the point of not stated especially when it comes to yes um but you know there's just that sense that that this is a a style which is just so different from the two previous showrunners that it's going to take time to adjust and one of the aspects i think that's most clear about that is that sort of absence of the big speech that jody hasn't been given those moments she has a few of them she has one right at the end of the battle of ranskor of Kolos. um the last sort of few seconds it's all about the journey and all about traveling with her family and all that kind of stuff and it's obviously aiming for the same territory but it's a little lower down in the mix um but i think that is a certain timidity to the writing and I, i'm hoping it's something that's going to be addressed sort of going forward in future seasons because it's so obvious that jody can do it oh for sure and i don't know i hope chimnall does get less timid because i don't know as much as you want variety in doctor who i don't know if understated works for doctor who at least not what i want out of it it definitely says a lot like i've always sort of felt exhausted by season finales in doctor who her 10 seasons in a row and every time it just feels too much especially with some of the worst excesses of things like you know like aforementioned name of the doctor or journey's end or end of time just just feel like so much but then you get to uh, battle rancor rancor of kolos and maybe we'll talk more in detail if we decide to go episode by episode but yeah it's just so low-key and understated that it just feels like nothing and i think not just me, but many people I've noticed on social media and the like are very happy that we got resolution soon afterwards because that feels a little bit more 
series finale in terms of uh, scope and bombast, but even then it's so small scale. And I definitely say the bombast doctor, the over excesses and uh, manic sort of indulgence is something you don't miss until it's gone. And now that it's gone, I miss it. And it's, uh, yeah, I don't know how to think about that. Well, yeah, that, I think that you don't miss it until it's gone is, is, is one of the kind of key sort of themes of, of this season. I think the other one that I would highlight is the fact that there's no kind of overarching plot to this season. And, you know, for the last 10 seasons, we've had an endless stream of people complaining about the fact that not every season has to have kind of like a, a story arc to it. And not every season has to have a, a Mr. Saxon or a Torchwood or, or The Vault or whatever. And then we get a season that doesn't have that and people complain about it. And say, oh, well, like there was one reference to the, the Timeless Child and then we never got anything else. And like, well, yeah, but it was just one glancing reference. It wasn't, you know, and like whether you, appreciate the the fact that this doesn't have an overarching sort of plot or whether you are sort of grateful to just have a series of standalone adventures it's still something which has been part of the dna of doctor who uh, since it came back in 2005 and as such when it's suddenly not there it is easy to sort of think oh right well maybe we should have that but of course it's not strictly true to say that there aren't kind of those arcs it's just that it's they tend to be more emotional arcs in this season rather than plot arcs so yeah we don't have a mr saxon or we don't have a torchwood but we do have kind of the coming together of of uh characters and and sort of emotional resolutions that sort of push these characters into places where they haven't necessarily sort of been before and that kind of character, like like um, Ryan and Graham eventually kind of finding resolution um, to their kind of uh, awkward, you know, family situation uh, right from the word go, or the way that Ryan's dad comes back, or all these kind of things. You know, they're all about finding the the sort of the, the character arc. And that, again, feels very like sort of Chris Gibnell's work in in Broadchurch, which wasn't, I mean, ostensibly it's a murder mystery, but it's much more about the characters who inhabit that world. And and that feels like the same approach being applied here. Whether you think that's a successful one or not, that's a separate matter. But but yeah, it, that absence of a, a story arc running through it is another thing that, you know, yeah, you don't miss it until it's gone. There's one more thing I want to talk about before we sort of get into episode specifics. And that is uh, the sort of, Variety, I guess, is the best word. No, oh, there's a rumor uh, about series on that before it came out, where it would be divided into three episodes in the past, three in the future, and four in the present. And remember that mostly panned out. I mean, you have to squint and call a Saranga conundrum in the present, but on an alien planet. But other than that, it lines up perfectly with that sort of prediction. And I think that was sort of a basis, in fact, of Chibnall saying he wanted to sort of go back to educational roots for Doctor Who and go back to sort of a balance between the past and the future that the old show, my old show, I mean like 60s show had that Doctor Who has then sort of played loosey-goosey with since then. But yeah, I really appreciate the sort of commitment to doing three shows in the past and like only sort of three on sort of Earth as opposed to uh, Davies who was like more fond of it. And that it gave sort of a nice variety and it really did sort of feel fresh to sort of have that then this was educational aspects of the past episodes too were also very nice and i really 
Yeah, like I said, I just liked the variety. Well, one other thing I want to talk about just before we sort of get to an episode by episode is um, this sort of absence of recurring monsters, which was the other big thing that, um, you know, was being played up prior to the series debuting. And the fact that the original, that the, that Jodie Whittaker's first season wasn't going to feature any returning monsters, which is technically true, because technically speaking, I guess the New Year's special doesn't count as part of the season, but it also sort of slightly does as well. Anyway, um, I really admire the principle behind that, um, that it's not prepared to just fall back on the old tropes of Doctor Who in order to kind of try and get this season to work. I think it's quite a brave decision. It's certainly one that no other showrunner has made up to this point. And that idea, I think, is extremely commendable. However, it's only really commendable if you replace the familiar monsters or characters or whatever with something which is going to work as well and I think that's one of the places where this season has really struggled it hasn't really produced any memorable sort of characters I don't I'm not really convinced Tim Shaw qualifies I think he's just slightly more memorable because he's in it twice rather than once um and you know like the pating or kind of I guess that's like a a funny idea that kind of sticks in the head because it's a silly name and a, a sort of daft looking creature but it's actually very dangerous but it's still not you know it's not the weeping angels it's not the silence or whatever um and i think it's really somewhere the season has uh, struggled to yeah just kind of land kind of more interesting sort of adversaries there is one alien i found memorable but then i had to uh, look up their names so maybe not so much but <laughs> Yeah, we'll get into that. But other than that, yes, I think it has been a very sort of uh, unmemorable season for new monsters in that, you know, unfortunate. I think New Who in general has very much struggled with new monsters. Like, unless they came from Stephen Moffat's pen, uh, you won't find many original uh, villains in in New Doctor Who that have really stuck in the mind. And that's kind of a bummer. Uh, I appreciate Chibnall's sort of ambition in trying to get a lot of new threats out there and a new concepts and sort of world expanding ideas that could possibly picked up in later seasons. I just don't think it was that successful because the writers just didn't provide new creatures. And when they sort of the new creatures, they did provide were just very sort of of a type of Dr. Who. And that's sort of a problem with Dr. Who is there's been so many stories over so many years that it's just hard to get a new angle on a monster that hasn't, resembled something that's already been done i mean i think that is true and you know yeah not every monster can be a you know not every monster could even be a a kral never mind something something more memorable and you know there's the the idea that that we want to have i I mean i i don't think that doctor who is at its best when it's just churning out an endless series of monsters in any case but you need a compelling kind of antagonist or a compelling you know, character for the Doctor to go up against. Otherwise, it ends up feeling flat. You know, um, it's one of the big problems with Rosa is that the episode itself is basically terrific, but Crasco is basically irrelevant. And because he's just this nothing, it feel it, 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 I think it pushes the episode to become abstract in a way it doesn't need to be. I won't over-talk about it now because we'll get to it. But, you know, that's just as one example, um, you know, where, where we really needed a strong, well-defined adversary in that episode to help kind of justify or it needed to be a pure historical but either way 
that kind of just that tokenistic kind of oh well there's a bad guy oh he's gone that that didn't that didn't work at all and and i think uh that's a kind of a common thread throughout the chibnall episodes in in this season with the exception of course of of uh, resolution because well then we have a dalek then it's clear and and it's just such a much better paced episode and a much zippier sort of more entertaining sort of piece of television i would go we talked about this a little bit off air beforehand, but I sort of agreed with what you said, which is that it's probably Chris Chibnall's best script for Doctor Who. Yeah, I think it probably is. And it strikes a balance between the character and the adversary. But tellingly, it does that when you actually have an adversary that's a proper genuine threat rather than just one of these kind of tossed off once off creations that haven't really left much of an impression. Well, you talk about waiting for Rosa to get into it, and I don't think you'll have to wait long. So let's start getting into it episode by episode. You have Woman Who Fell to Earth, and we've recorded a whole podcast about that story. So you can go back and listen to that. I think all new I have to say about that is, like I said, a lot of our sort of ideas how the season would pan out, I don't think a lot of them actually panned out. And that's uh, very interesting. And then there's the Ghost Monument, which I don't think we have anything to say on other than it's boring. I have one thing to say about the Ghost Monument, which is that it really frustrates me because I like... The general idea of it, I think, I think this is another thing about sort of Chris Chibnall's writing. Um, there are sort of he's he's a good ideas man. He can come up with like an interesting idea and like the idea of the TARDIS, like the ghost monument. That's like a, that's a nice kind of resonant phrase and the idea it's a TARDIS that's been sort of phasing in and out of reality for like um you know thousands of years or whatever. That's almost like a big finishy kind of idea. It's almost like Jubilee or something like that. You can see that there's ambition there and that he's reaching for an interesting idea. But then we just get the most kind of go there, do that, boring kind of plot that you could imagine. And the idea just doesn't amount to anything. And that's deeply frustrating. But I think it's a, a common theme here. So I think um uh well we'll we'll sort of I'll I'll cover this a bit more as we go through the episodes but I think it's going to be a, something I come back to that that he needs to either improve the way that he's writing or give these good ideas to other writers who can then make them flourish. Oh yeah, great ideas bad execution or not even really bad just boring execution is going to be a very common theme talking about Chibnall stories. But then let's move into Rose which we have a lot more to talk about. Uh I Touched on this in our Axis of Insanity episode, uh, where we sort of covered the first half of season 11 half-heartedly. And, but yeah, I was not a Rosa fan, and I feel bad about that, for sure. Uh, not the least of which I feel guilty for that, because the first Doctor Who story is scripted by a woman of color. Scripted by sort of anyone of color, if I'm right. Doctor Who TV story, I should emphasize. But still, yeah, it's... It's sort of disappointing how it doesn't land for me. And I think a lot of that has to do with, like you said, the villain in it is this big snarling racist and that's his entire characterization. And then that gets into my sort of broader problem with these sort of stories set in the past where if you just treat racism as this thing, this force that makes people mean to each other rather than sort of systemic thing in the culture, it just feels very tacky to me. And it's something that I just can't get over watching the story. For all its other sort of wonderful things about it, it just makes me uncomfortable and frustrated and a little bored seeing so much of airspace dedicated to white people like being mean <laughs> about it for, for seemingly like just... I mean, with the motivation is, oh, they're racist and not like 
sort of understanding what that is or what that comes from. Yeah, I think that's a perfectly fair criticism. And like, a lot of people will point to that scene where Ryan and Yaz are sort of sitting behind the, the, the uh, bins, sort of having this conversation about their different experiences with race um, sort of growing up. Um, what makes that speech so, or that little scene rather, so frustrating is that's exactly what the whole episode should have been. It should have been, a, because that's starting to tackle the idea that it's not just people are mean. It's starting to look at the sort of more systemic side of it. So the fact that, you know, Yaz is um, an Asian woman coming up sort of, you know, through the ranks and are trying to come up through the ranks in the police is going to face discrimination. But the kind of discrimination she's going to face in that role is going to be different, you know, from a, a, a black young man uh, like Ryan and, and the kind of prejudice that he's going to face. Um, and that feels much more where the episode sort of should have had its emphasis. And and yeah, there's 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 just a, a little bit too much uh, hand-wringing in it. But it does have its heart in the right place, so I'll certainly give it credit for that. And I think I mentioned this when we talked about it um, sort of previously when we covered the first bit of this season, is that it did seem to genuinely spark something of a conversation in, in the UK. It got kids talking about something which wasn't necessarily being taught to them directly at school or it wasn't necessarily part of like their usual history lectures or, or lessons or whatever. And so if it helped to prompt that kind of discussion and that kind of awareness, especially sort of at this point in history where, you know, it feels like society is becoming much more kind of polarized and we have the rise of the right or whatever, if it helps to sort of prompt conversations, especially in, in sort of younger people and, and contribute towards an understanding then that's all to the good. It maybe doesn't necessarily make it the most genius piece of television you've ever seen in your life, but at least it feels like it's contributing something to the conversation. But I, I also, in saying that, I also completely agree with your criticisms of it. Oh yeah, and I, I don't want to diminish, like you said, the sort of impact it's had outside of Doctor Who, and I am very thankful for that. I think that's fantastic, just just offer my own opinion. But I will say, one thing I really did enjoy about Rosa is its very different approach to the historical story. Where this idea of the Doctor trying to make history go on schedule. And, like, I don't know if we've really seen that before. I mean, of course we've seen the Doctor trying to prevent history from being altered. But this sort of very active way of looking at it, of history is going off course, let's adjust it as much as we can in these sort of, sort of like sledgehammer ways to sort of punch it back into the right direction. And then, especially you have the whole whiteboard sequences, which is one of a few sort of, you could call them whiteboard sequences, even if it doesn't use an actual whiteboard, or the doctor like drawing figures and diagrams on the board to try to figure things out. That's very satisfying. And what I sort of love about Doctor Who is this sort of commitment to solving a problem through ingenuity and problem solving rather than just uh, laser guns and who is the strongest muscles. It's really a great sort of intellectual exercise, and I really do enjoy that aspect of the story. Yeah, I agree with that as well. I think it, the fact that we get to see the Doctor trying to work something out in that kind of way also helps to connect it a little bit back to the past. I mean, the the, the sort of the whole uh, sort of whiteboard thing is, is feels a bit sort of Capaldi-esque, and so it's quite nice to have these little references back. Just sort of, you know, it's not anything that's drawn attention to, but it at least makes it feel like there's some degree of sort of continuity between uh, the characters or the different aspects of the same character. And and yeah, that's that's very much something to be commended as well. Moving on, uh, Arachnids in the UK and the Saranga Conundrum, we talked about a bit on that Axis of Insanity episode, so I don't think I have any new thoughts on them. I think they're fine, in case you haven't listened to that, but yeah, they're just very sort of solid meat and potatoes Doctor Who stories. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I think it's disheartening a little bit. Um, and I think when we recorded that episode, I think we were sort of coming to the same conclusion that it was becoming a bit disheartening that basically all the episodes we were getting were just meat and potato episodes. But that like first half of the season up to the end of the Saranga conundrum just feels like it just isn't taking light. And it's it's kind of frustrating because you can see that there's so much talent, especially on screen, you can see that there's just so much talent sort of uh, being deployed and, and it feels like they're being done in, in such a series of episodes that just don't add up to much. And I'm not going to talk about Jodie again, but like Bradley Walsh is great. Tosin Cole is, is probably the weakest of the three, I guess, companions, but he's still good. And Amanda Gill is great and then given absolutely nothing to do. And, you know, that's not going to be her story throughout the uh, rest of this conversation. But, you know, they're good actors and you can see that there's so much that can be done with them, but it's frustrating to cover everything up to the end of the Saranga conundrum and just have kind of like bog standard meat and potatoes Doctor Who. And then we finally get to the turning point. Episode six, Demons of the Punjab. Um, Yeah, we finally get to an episode which actually has something to say. It's inventive in its way that it's using history. It's so lovely to have a a historical setting which isn't just a celebrity celebrity historical, but it's actually bothering to take the time to explore a culture and an aspect of the past which maybe a lot of people aren't familiar with. Um, and it's just great. Everything suddenly comes alive in that episode. It's still, it's not a fast-paced episode. It's a very sort of slow and thoughtful episode. And I can understand there might be some people who have sort of reservations about that after sort of five episodes of, eh, but, you know, but it's just so well written, so well acted, and there's just such a, a great understanding of the sort of thematic uh, points that the episode wants to make. And it, it never mishandles them. It never overplays its hand. It's just it's just simply a, a, a really knockout episode of Doctor Who. And it was such a relief to get to it and think, oh, right, thank God, at last we can see this is going to go somewhere. Something we've alighted in this conversation of the series so far is the fact that those first five episodes are written by Chris Chibnall or co-written by him. And even Rosa, which is probably primarily Miley Blackman's sort of writing, still has a co-write credit from him. And then the other four are pure Chibnall scripts. So this Demons of the Punjab kicks off four scripts in a row that uh, don't have him on the credits even though it probably still has shown her duties on them, it really stands out that they feel so different than what came before in the season. And it really does feel like a breath of fresh air because each, for mostly better, uh, feel very different and feel like very fresh takes on Doctor Who. And it makes you really applaud Chimel's decision not to bring back any recurring writers. As much as I'd love to see uh, Sarah Dollard or Peter Harness back again, I really do appreciate all these original voices and you know, the Punjab really does feel like an original voice of Doctor Who. It was the Thajarians I alluded to earlier as the one sort of memorable alien. Even I had to look up their name and struggle to pronounce it. It's a really fascinating concept of aliens that were assassins and then are atoning for that by sort of honoring death. And it gives this great sense of dramatic irony when they show up and you know that someone is going to die. And it really does sort of present this sort of closed loop of history and that's a really great looking history i know it's not original not even original to doctor who 
but this idea that you've been given sort of all the information you know about historical setting going in, and so you sort of know the tragedy laying there ahead of you, and there's nothing you can really do to avoid it. And that is so, it's just a very powerful sort of idea, no matter how often it's used in time travel stories. It's one I always come back to in Loving. Well, yeah, absolutely. And I just want to sort of um, co-sign on what you said about this feeling like a genuinely new voice in Doctor Who. I think that's exactly what Vinay Patel achieves in this episode as the writer. And it is just great to see like a proper expansion. I don't, I don't think there's another story which is like this in Doctor Who history. And it, I mean, if I was to come up with anything that's even close, I think I would be going all the way back to something like The Massacre in, in uh, William Hartnell's uh, seasons. So, I mean, that's how far back you have to go until there's anything even close. And that's a pure historical, so there's, it's not it's not perfect fit either. So, yeah, it's just, I just, I love the fact that this, this sort of really pushes at the boundaries of what Doctor Who uh, can do and where it can go. And, you know, when we were talking about that Hong Kong setting, we were talking about Sympathy for the Devil, and it's an, a markedly unusual setting. But once again, here, with this sort of uh, sort of India-Pakistan setting on the border, we get to see what a difference it can make to the storytelling when we start to explore things which are, you know, outside the home counties. It's, it's just so great for that. And I'm also going to throw in, this is definitely Yaz's best episode, given that it's focused on her. And end up, Gil gives a great performance, sort of struggling with these ideas later earlier of sort of the dramatic irony of time travel. And it's unfortunate that this is really the only episode to use her well, but it uses her really well and makes me really hopeful we get better material out of her in series, seasons to come because she is like a really good actress. And I'm really excited for her to get her own sort of scripts to sink her teeth into, like I'm hoping for Jody. Well, absolutely. I, I completely agree. And yeah, I, I, once again, I just want to sign off and say, yeah, Mant Gill is great in this. I, I wish that there was much more to be done with her character or even to discuss about her character, really, over the course of this season. But I mean, that's always going to be the consequence of having this many companions. I mean, it's clear that the emotional pivot in this is, is not really anything to do with Yaz. It's, it's really about the way that um, Graham and, and Ryan sort of come to an understanding. And you know, one of the criticisms I think that this season has come into, and I think it's a completely fair one, is that it, it feels very conservative compared to the way that Doctor Who often operates. And, and there, if you want to sort of lean into that reading, the fact that kind of the best served companion is the, is the white middle-aged man, you know, there's your there's your gateway into sort of saying that this this is quite a conservative season, whereas the sort of young woman of color who comes from a place of authority uh, as a policewoman is is completely sidelined. You know, she's just completely pushed into the background. Um, and I think uh, I think there's plenty to say about that um, in terms of sort of the, the, the sort of dynamics of how the characters operate within this season. But at least she has demons of the Punjab. And yeah, of course, you're completely correct. Manda Gill is simply fabulous in it. Moving on to Kerblam, which is a story I think we'll have less to say about. But uh, one thing I do want to say is I'm sort of conflicted on Kerblam. I like what it tries to do for sort of world building of Doctor Who, introducing this sort of Amazon-like company and sort of this new idea of relationship between humans and robots. I'm also very deeply skeptical of the fact that the Doctor is very excited about Kerblam when everything about it... Uh, seems to echo our current sort of trouble with Amazon, and Amazon is not exactly a good, friendly corporation in 2018. Very uh, 
poor working conditions over there. And then that almost seems to be sort of a tangent carried through in the Kerblam about it not sort of be sort of picking on the aspect, like not being exactly an ideal place to work. And then it sort of is dropped for a much more conventional sort of mystery story. But it then is always sort of an odd note throughout the story of the Doctor being so excited to work for Kablam when, given what we know about this sort of warehouse, awful working condition factories nowadays, and given how Kablam itself even looks in the episode as this not pleasant place to be working at, it doesn't really track with the Doctor's characterization. It's a very odd note to strike. I kind of hate Kerblam, I've got to be honest. Um, I don't know that I would necessarily say that it's the worst of the season, but I, 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 again, I'm going to co-sign on what you said there. There's something very weird about the way that the Doctor just kind of rolls with a lot of what's going on here. And it seems to be an episode that wants to explicitly go for a kind of a critique of Amazon or companies like Amazon, and then basically ends up just siding with them. It, I mean, it sort of mentioned conservatism before, but this feels like a very conservative kind of episode of television. And I think one of the problems with that is that there's no real voice given to any kind of other opinions. I, I, I think a lot of the way that this episode comes across is really slightly unintentional. Uh, so I think that it's an episode which genuinely believes that it's trying to sort of critique Amazon um, and then just isn't nearly smart enough to understand that it ends up doing the exact opposite. But I think... Like the idea, like um, that there's a, there can be people who work within these companies who aren't all evil and bad, and some people are trying to help or make things a bit better or just get on with their lives. That's that's okay, and that's true. I used to work in a call center, and I bloody hated it. But you know, there was I I had to pay my rent, and it was as simple as that. And even although I knew it wasn't uh you know the the best thing in the world to be doing with my life. I had bills to pay, and so I was stuck doing a job that I hated, but I was doing it out of necessity. I think that's what this episode is trying to go for, but it completely sort of fails in that. And I just, I, there's something, it really, it leaves an extremely kind of bad taste in my mouth. I just, there's something about Kerblam I really dislike. It's very well made. And I think even that is part of the problem as well, because that kind of almost lets it sort of slip past you. And, you know, it's just, yeah, like, you know, it's just the way that the workers are treated there is is still terrible, regardless of whether there's some nice woman at the, at the middle management trying to do something about it. And, and the doctor just doesn't seem to be bothered with it. There's a very direct piece of fridging in it, which is just terrible. Um, and it just, you know, like the one good idea it's got is killer bubble wrap. Well, that's great. Uh, of course, everybody loves killer bubble wrap. That's fantastic. But for the rest of it, I don't know. I, I really strongly dislike Kerblam. Thoughtless is definitely, I think, a great way to describe it. Uh, you're, you're sort of turning me against it. Little I remember it. I just remember sort of very passively enjoying it because I do love a good sort of mystery. But you're right. I mean, even the fridging sort of caught me off guard when I was first listening to it, as well as all the sort of shady, sort of weird stance on corporate culture. But you're right. That does sort of feel distasteful, like, in after sort of thought. And... It's just very distracting, and it really just reeks of not thinking it through on writer Pete Matigue's account. And I just think, you're right, maybe he set out to do an anti-Amazon story by setting it there and sort of funneling it through this sort of perception of Amazon 
but then got distracted or bored or just could not think of a way to sort of hammer that message home and said so just told a very, very conventional Doctor Who story. And that, yeah, that just sort of is very sort of not, doesn't feel right. It doesn't sit right to sort of, because by abandoning those points, he winds up accidentally contradicting himself throughout the story. And it's just, yeah, it just doesn't sit right at all. Exactly that. It's just, it's something very weird and some kind of sort of pat resolution about, uh, oh, well, we like, we'll try a little bit to like make it a bit better. Um, nah, that is, that's not nearly a, a big enough fig leaf to try and sort of make that work. But I, I'm, I'm happy to move on from Kerblan now and talk about something rather more wonderful, which is the Witchfinders. And I love the Witchfinders. It's such a delight, uh, especially Alan Cumming is the MVP of that episode as King James the First. It's, it's not like Demons of the Punjab, or it takes you away where it's like a masterpiece of Doctor Who, where it really pushes the bounds of what the show can be. But it's just fun. It's it's very Unicorn and the Waspy, which I think is a oh no 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 it's good yeah <laughs> sorry I hate the Unicorn and the Wasp carry on okay but it's <laughs> no it but it has that same indulge me in sort of the comparison because it has that same sort of ring of a treating a celebrity historical with a very sort of lightness to touch and being a sort of wackier run around and just really sort of indulging in these sort of historical ideas with a much more sort of frothy atmosphere than otherwise oh yeah i mean it's 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 a romp it's a run around and that's that that's fine there's there's a little bit of sort of more serious stuff going on under the surface and it's the first episode of course that directly addresses the fact that the doctor is now a woman rather than a man because she gets that speech about how you know if she was in any of her previous bodies she'd be able to just get on with this rather than having to justify herself of course that feels very pointed in a sort of metatextual kind of way but you know at least it's something which gets dropped in there um but for the rest of it i see i don't hardly even think of this as a celebrity history I suppose it is, but I mean, you know, King James the First is—it's not like to take your uh, analogy. It's not like meeting Agatha Christie, or it's not like meeting Shakespeare or Dickens or or whatever. You know, it's—it's. It's, I mean, he's probably a name that people might know, um, but beyond that, it's—it's not a, a typical sort of celebrity historical it feels maybe a little bit more about um like 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 me think uh madame de pompadour for example maybe that's a closer kind of thing where you might have heard the name but probably a lot most people won't know that much about the character um but yeah it's a delight it's 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 just thoroughly entertaining it's funny um i don't think the ending quite manages to land um that's that's a bit of a shame but other than that yeah alan cumming is great fun to spend time around if there's ever a reason to go back to this period then i'd be more than happy to see him return and as sort of um bring the role back that would be great um and yeah there's just there's just it's just a really straightforwardly enjoyable episode and it's the kind of romp that i think um the first half of the season badly needed to kind of g things up a bit um but right here sort of squeezed in between the well sort of weird kerblam and sort of the the next episode which is my flat out favorite of the season it, it fits very well and uh yeah it's 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 just it's just really great fun yeah sort of pick at that weed you mentioned earlier uh the ending is very very uh cliche doctor who where it's just oh, here are alien monsters here, and we have to resolve the emotional conflict, and that sort of ties into killing the aliens and freeing everyone. And, I mean, yeah, it does have a bit of a darker edge to it because of the whole witch-finding aspect and 
really sort of digging into sort of the mob rule fear of that, which is always, I think, like a timeless sort of theme to pick at. I mean, ever since the Twilight Zone's been doing it, and it's been going on even further back since then, and it still does have resonance today. It's the idea of people sort of looking out for their own and turning against their own. But it works so well, and yeah, I just think it's a really great theme to sort of dig into, even though it is sort of very cliche Doctor Who to have tying up that sort of moral end, being tied into defeating the aliens and all. But, oh yeah, I just wanted to say one more thing about King James, is I really like how it wound up being part of the sort of accidental trend, with also movies coming out around the same time, the favorite in Mary Queen of Scots, of just uh, acknowledging queerness of historical figures, and how in that sort of time period it was not embraced and not really even, but sort of accepted in a way. I guess accept is this term for it. I'm not a historian myself, but reading a bit on the subject, it does a good job in sort of not erasing that aspect of him as a person. And I really enjoyed the little fun it gets out of that. Oh yeah, definitely. I think it is one of the other things sort of to point out is that it does manage to include that sort of that queerness aspect of him, but without it just being like a heavy handed sort of, oh, and you know, he also fancies boys or whatever, you know, it's just like, it's just there as part of the character. Um, But it feels like the right way to handle it. It's present, it's part of who he is, but it's not sort of the dom. That's not what this story is about. So it's allowed to stand as part of his character, whilst we can also sort of focus on like the, the, the paranoia and his obsession with witches and all that kind of stuff and find, you know, other aspects to explore. So yeah, no, I, I, I think that was uh, genuinely well handled and deserves to be praised. I guess enough uh, putting off any longer. Let's talk about both of our favorite episodes of the season. It Takes You Away, which is just... A masterpiece. I love it. Uh, I was very delighted uh, to say at the top to find out that Ed Heim has already confirmed to write for Series 12. He's the first confirmed writer. And granted, that's through his agent, I think, like his official website. So that might still fall through in the intervening year until we get to see it. But hopefully that sticks because I would love another script from him. This is so inventive and imaginative and weird. And it's everything I wanted out of Doctor Who. Couldn't have said it better myself. It's just so great. It's it's incredibly well directed as well. So I, I want to give a, a call out to uh, Jamie Childs as well for the direction here because it's simply perfect in terms of being able to sort of capture the emotional tone of of the piece. It's funny. It's inventive. It's got so much sort of going on for it. Um, and it's able to use uh, everything that sort of exists within the Doctor Who playbook to just sort of devastatingly effective sort of consequence. So, you know, we've had strange, weird uh, sort of interdimensional voids before, but we've never seen one quite like this. It's almost sort of fairy tale esque with like lamps, which are basically balloons and all that kind of stuff. So that fairy tale aspect feels very kind of Moffat. You've got the, the sort of mystery that's slowly unfolding. That feels very kind of McCoy. Um, and then we get to Talking Frog, which doesn't feel like anything at all. And that means it feels like Whitaker, And that's great. That's something which is just so unique to her. And um, I mean, I've heard some people sort of complaining that maybe it should have been Grace who was sitting on the chair at the end. But I don't agree. I think the frog is kind of what makes the whole thing work. And it's just, it's it's lovely and it's compassionate and it's 
deeply peculiar and very very strange indeed and it's just such genius and uh yeah i i i i I, just when i think it's got everything we get a talking frog i don't know what else you could possibly want from doctor who to hit the frog thing don't don't hit frogs okay (laughs) i just think it's so necessary to have it be a frog because you need that abstraction to really emphasize how weird and unusual the solid tract is how unlike just having it be Sharon D. Clark in that chair would make it seem more relatable. We need the frog so it doesn't seem relatable. So it is this abstract, bizarre thing that the doctor is talking to. And also, just for like a crass meta aspect, you want a talking frog because it makes it more memorable. So, I mean, that's why we're talking about it because it's a talking frog. And that is going to stick in the memory much more. Well, I, it will definitely stick in the memory. That's not something that... uh you know, everybody could manage to pull off successfully, but it's a a real credit to everybody that's involved here that it's able to kind of land that aspect of it without just seeming stupid or without the whole episode kind of collapsing around it. Because I think if it was mishandled, you could still have a talking frog there, but just the whole thing would just collapse in on itself. But it's taken, it's played dead straight. It's not a joke. It's not funny. Um, And there's that subtle shift of emphasis. So Graham and Grace get to have that kind of conversation where, you know, Graham's heart gets broken because he he sees Grace again, but he realizes it's not really her and that she's actually gone and this isn't ever going to bring her back. So he gets his kind of emotional catharsis there. But it's not just about his story. It's also, you know, about the way that the doctor is going to respond to this. And it's going to be the way that the Solitract is going to respond to this. And, you know, it's not uh, it's not adversarial in the traditional sense. It, it's, it's just lonely. And loneliness is a great motivator for your antagonist in a Doctor Who story. It's not about having a monster. It's not about having, you know, some bad guy to fight against. But it, it's a motivation like loneliness. It's the same way that um, boredom is such a great sort of uh, motivating factor for the Eternals and something like Enlightenment. And you're using that kind of emotion as your sort of driving aspect of what makes your character function rather than some kind of plot or, or something like that or backstory. And that's, that's just great. That's such a, such a smart way of writing this. Oh, and speaking of the loneliness, I mean, I agree. It's such a fascinating sort of motivation, much more than just typical rule of the earth kind of thing. It's just such a very keyed in motivation that's so relatable but then it also leads to jody's great moment which i think is the most whitaker doctor we've seen and like most unique to her which is her saying i want to be your friend i'll be your friend forever and so using that tact to sort of get on the solid track sort of good side uh saying not just that like she's appealing to it emotionally but specifically in the way that she wants to be its friend she wants to nurture it and care for it and have this sort of relationship with it and is seems legitimately heartbroken that she can't because that means taking her away from earth which is where she knows she's needed earth and the rest of the universe and that and that just speaks so much to the character so much where she legitimately wants to be friends with this person she, not even person this entity this unexplainable thing, and she legitimately wants to have this connection with it, and it seems legitimately torn up that she can't and have a normal life at the same time. Well, normal for her, but still, it's just so heartbreaking and fascinating, and that is so unique to her and so special to her. I really hope it's something they run with in future scripts, because it really sets her apart. 
Well, I couldn't possibly end a discussion of this episode without mentioning how great sort of uh, Bradley Walsh is here because Graham just gets put through the ringer here. And he's so good at, at having that kind of, that sort of heartbroken expression on his face, even before he sort of says anything, when he, he realizes who's going to be standing behind the white sheets. And, you know, even before he gets his, oh, no, not, you know, don't let it be this sort of line. He, you could, it's just all in his face. And for all that I might have sort of said earlier that you can draw some kind of conclusion about the idea that the sort of one of the, you know, the white man is kind of like the, the most emphasized as far as the companions go here. At least when he is, when he's given these kind of scenes, he kind of justifies that place because, because Walsh is just so brilliant in this episode and you know even although his kind of big emotional scenes are sort of five or ten minutes sort of uh, in the sort of back third of the episode he just he lands every single second of them and he's just he's outstanding in this episode to get back on the subject of white guilt i do feel bad that by far my favorite of the new companions is graham and i think bradley walsh is giving the best performance out of the three of them but I think a lot of that has to do with the other two being so underserved by the writing. And I mean, you can't really blame anyone for loving Graham because, like you said, he gets such great range. The sidebar about him in general for a very brief moment, he's just such a great presence in this season. Uh, Graham gets so many funny and light moments and such a great sort of buoyant presence. It's really unique energy. There's no real companion like Graham where you can draw parallels with Ryan and Yaz. And he just feels so fresh uh, of a voice to Doctor Who. This very sort of casual person who takes this all in stride and is having a little bit of fun with it, but also has a sort of, I don't know, doddering makes him seem a little older than he really is, but just this kind of out of touch, but just sort of rolling with it anyway, his persona. And then that doesn't sort of preclude him having these more dramatic moments. Uh, even with him being mostly this comic relief throughout the season, he has these very powerful moments and it takes you away that just take my breath away. And it just really, really is powerful stuff. And I think Bradley Walsh, there's all the credit. I know there's a lot of uh, English people I know on Twitter. I don't know if you all share the same opinion as well, who are just flabbergasted that Bradley Walsh is giving a great performance on this show. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't Absolutely. have the history with him. I don't know him as a presenter or anything, but just coming at him blind, I think he's a fantastic performer and I love everything he's doing. Well, I completely agree. And if you want to find a way of sort of squaring away that kind of, well, it's the white male, at least when there's the sort of emotional sort of resolution between him and Ryan at the end of the episode, the moment isn't given to him. It's given to Ryan. He's the one who approaches uh, Graham and eventually calls him grandfather. And of course, um, Graham's been reaching out all season trying to kind of bridge this apparently unbridgeable gap. But when the moment actually comes, at least it's Ryan that's given the moment. He's the one that has the agency and, and sort of closes that emotional distance to them. So it's not like the character is being sort of completely sidelined from from the uh, sort of perspective of their kind of uh, relationship. And I, I think that is important. So that does help to sort of mitigate against this sort of it being the sort of the white man that's kind of this principal um, focus. Because, I mean, Ryan does well in this episode as well. Um, so, you know, I don't I don't want to put him to, to one side, to, uh, to too much to one side. But it is absolutely, it, it's about Graham and it's about the way that he reacts to grace and 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 in dealing with that they're then able to sort of bridge that emotional distance and yeah it's just it's such a fantastic episode i to get back to ryan i agree with you 
earlier that Tozen Cole is probably the weakest performer of the season, though that's praising with fate damnation uh, to turn a phrase because he really is excellent, especially in that moment. He really does shine when he's given the few chances to, and I really hope we get to see more of him in the future. Uh, there's just one more thing if it takes you a while I have to talk about because I love the sort of notes of the mystery as it unfolds. I love the monster in the woods being a recording and how all these elements are set up and then sort of picked away one by one. That was my favorite one, that the sort of monster in the woods is this red herring, and then it ties into the dad trying to keep his blind daughter safe. But it really is just one of many different ways the story sort of unkilters you at the top with so many different elements, and then just slowly chips away and explains them all in ways that are all satisfying without taking away the sort of uh, majesty and sort of mystery of it all. I agree with every single word of that, and I have nothing else to add. All right, so on to the Battle of Ranscor Avcolus. Uh, I hope I said that correctly. Uh, yeah, uh, unlike it takes you away, we have a lot less to say about this one. It is a very disappointing finale. Like I said at the beginning of the discussion, it's the bombast is something you don't know you miss until it's gone, and it, it really misses some bombast. It's a very, very... Uh, typical feeling run around without much of the way to sort of set it apart yeah i think that's fair and i think it's also kind of instructive to compare it with resolution because i think it's trying to do very similar things um i mean it's it's i suppose it obviously it ties back to the woman who fell to earth in terms of having tim shaw come back but you know it's also it's trying to be kind of like a, a sort of a bit more actiony than we've seen in the sort of previous few episodes and it, it's trying to have that kind of pace and uh, you know, it's it's sort of uh, shot quite atmospherically and, and sort of close in and it's trying to sort of generate tension from that, but it doesn't really land it. There's a few moments that work effectively in it, but it, overall it, it feels kind of flabby and it never really develops all that much sense of momentum. Tim Shaw was okay in The Woman Who Fell to Earth because you need an antagonist to get things off the ground. So he was fine in that uh, respect and his makeup is relatively sort of distinctive, I guess. Uh, but there was no great call for him to come back. So nobody was sort of hanging out the bunting and cheering when, when he turns up here again. And, and yeah, right enough, he's, he's the same. He's sort of, he's a stompy, stompy bad guy. You know, that's, that's all he really is. And now he's a frozen stompy, stompy bad guy. Um, okay, that's nice. Um, and there's not an awful lot else to say here. Like the Ux are an interesting idea that nothing is done with, and um, that we've already kind of had the emotional kind of bonding between Ryan and Graham. So there's not a lot of emotional ground to cover here. Uh, it's just an episode which is 50 minutes long, and and uh, yeah, it's kind of underwhelming. Is anything approaching a, a sort of conclusion to the season? Whereas if you compare it to sort of resolution. It's got the pace that, that uh, the Battle of uh, Ranskar of Kolos doesn't have. It's got that sort of zippy action and that sort of fun about it. And it's fired up. And I mean, I know it's not really possible because of the, the way that the production works, but it feels like resolution is kind of picking up on the mistakes which have been made sort of throughout that season without having anything kind of that's sort of tense and action-packed and exciting and all that kind of stuff. And it's sort of course correcting. And it's great because it proves the series is capable of doing that. And I, I, I think Resolution is terrific. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm not going to tell you that it's a deep episode of television. It's absolutely not. But it feels like it's succeeding at doing all the things the Battle of Ranskar of Kolos tried to do and then didn't. To turn it around and damn with faint praise, I do think Resolution might be Chibnall's best script for Doctor Who. Yeah, I'll go with that. Yeah, and it's because, like you said, it's very zippy. It's got uh, 
great characters. It has a lot of characters, but unlike something like Saranga Conundrum, it doesn't sort of overindulge and then separate them and have like basically too many dishes it's trying to cook. It's just very focused on this one sort of sweet little love story and then has other things sort of incidental to it. But it doesn't feel like it's pulling itself in too many directions. Everything would be focused around this story with the Dalek. And it is a great interpretation of the Daleks. It's probably the most original and fresh-feeling uh, interpretation of a Dalek since uh, Dalek way back in Eccleston's season. And everything since has felt very derivative in using them. It's just a standard world-conquering force. And we'll get into the Dalek, which sort of mixes things up a little bit. Uh, this thing seems very fresh, having the Dalek completely outside of the casing. And just sort of... It feels... Like, scary for the first time in a long time. It feels like this idea of something controlling you and not having and being aware of it. It feels almost Black Mirror esque, I guess not really with a technology aspect, but very much in a preying on psychological fears and seeing what sort of that happens to your sort of personal relationships kind of aspect to it. It feels like it's preying on that sort of psychological trauma that is very sort of fresh and interesting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And like the, something as simple as the possession is, is not, you know, it's not a complicated effect or, and it's not a, a difficult thing to achieve, but it's, it's really effective. It's, it's kind of creepy and it's, it's sort of, you know, very disquieting, but it's, it's not just like standard possession kind of stuff. And that works really well. And, this, and, and the fact that like, our two guest characters aren't just red shirts, they're not just killed off to try and up the dramatic uh, stakes, that they're actually allowed to survive the episode. Even that makes it feel kind of unusual. And I think, um, again, I want to give a shout out to sort of Wayne Yip as the director here as well, because he's obviously a terrific match for this material and he really makes it sing and um if nothing i know we have to wait a year now before we get any new doctor who and that's a pity but at least finishing with this episode it gives me hope for the future that that um some of the sort of growing pains of season 11 have kind of been worked out of the system and now we're kind of in a place where things can you know take off i mean one of the things about this season is that the sort of the tone of the season is wildly inconsistent but that's also true of russell t davis's first season as well you know and and um i think Moffat had a slightly easier ride coming in because he was kind of he was anointed as kind of the you know the 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 heir apparent um and was much more sort of familiar where but you know yeah Davis's first season the, the, the it's wildly sort of sort of tonal disconnect all over that season and the same is true of this one but we know Russell T Davis went on to do much greater seasons than than Eccleston's first one and you know I'm hopeful now that we can see with resolution that things can be much much better and still retain the core of of this version of doctor who and and particularly of jodie whittaker's doctor i'm hopeful that that means uh season 12 is going to be able to sort of build on the strengths there um and and we can sort of yeah we we end up putting the season down to eh, it's not the best season of doctor who there's some good stories in there but it's you know it's the growing season yeah, telescope back in resolution just for a quick second before pulling back out to the season as a whole again. Uh, great Nicholas Biggs performance as the Dalek in resolution. Oh yeah, like absolutely most engaged he's felt as a Dalek voice in forever. It feels like he is just <laughs> like doing that sort of very controlling uh, possession voice is so effective, 
And I mean, there's a reason he's been doing this for like two decades now. It's because he's good at it. He's real good. Uh, but yeah, it's been. Uh, I can't say it's been a great season of Doctor Who, but I feel glad that resolution seems to indicate there are some growing pains that are being figured out. Uh, I'm glad about the sort of sideways indication that Ed Heim might be returning, that they've found some good writers to keep Doctor Who going. And I'd love to see from this season of Vinay Patel and Joy Wilkinson back again as well. And I'd love to see another crack from Mally Blackman because there are things with Rose I really liked, even if there are things I didn't. There is some great fresh blood in Doctor Who, and I really think this can be a strong show going forward. I think all the cast is wonderful and can be given the chance to shine even brighter than they have been this season. And yeah, I'm really sort of bullish on sort of season 12. Hopefully that will be uh, rewarded rather than uh, be a letdown. Yeah, I'm I'm hopeful for the season as well. And you know, we were we were getting worried apart uh, sort of towards the end of uh, the first half of this season that that it was just going to be completely flat and mediocre. And the season was able to turn it around. It was able to get on its feet and and deliver some some really terrific episodes. So as long as we can continue that upward journey, then I think we're going to be okay. All right, uh, I think that wraps up our super extended length episode on Sympathy with the Devil and Series 11 as a whole, you can email us at talkingwhotoyou at gmail.com, and in our episodes that will be shorter. We'll have time to read those messages. You can also find us on Twitter at TalkingWhoToYou. You can find me on Twitter at KevKozer, that is K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. You can find JG's writings at www.jgmcquarry.scott. That is J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E dot Scott. Fantastic. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to our somewhat extended episode as we've covered this stuff. Next week, we shall be returning to business as usual. So we will be returning to the worlds of Big Finish, and we will be covering the last. This is the second last uh, story in the Divergent Universe arc. So we'll be back with the eighth Doctor, Charlie and carers. We hope you're going to join us for that, but until then, keep talking.